Hello and welcome to Still Scared Talking Children's Horror, a podcast about creepy, spooky and disturbing children's books, films and TV. I'm Ren Wednesday and with my co-host Adam Wybray, today we're going to be talking about two films, Paranorman and The Box Trials. And I just wanted to add a quick warning that in the latter half of the episode, we do talk about some transmisogynist, transphobic tropes that come up. Um, I will say when we get there, in case you would rather not listen to that. Enjoy! talking about Paranorman and, to a lesser extent, Box Trolls. Yeah, Paranorman's more of a horror film. Yes. And I suggested that we talk about Paranorman, um, despite not liking it very much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you got that out of the way early. Just to get that out of the way, right at the start. Um, <laughs> because um, it's made by uh, the studio's Leica, so it's a stop-motion animation film um, made by the same studio that did Coraline. And we both love Coraline. <laughs> a children's horror classic that we will undoubtedly talk about at some point. So it had a lot to live up to going into it. And in my opinion, it doesn't live up to it. <laughs> so Paranorman is... Uh, so the main character is Norman, who is an 11-year-old boy who lives in a small Massachusetts town that is part of the witch trials industry. And he's voiced Um, by uh, Cody Smith-McPhee. Okay. Which is a a great name, I just want (laughs) to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, And he can see and speak to the dead. And it's the 300th anniversary of a witch's execution in this town. And Norman finds out that the story of the witch cursing her sentences is true and they're going to raise from the dead and he needs to stop them. That's essentially the plot. So, is it scary, Adam? What do you think? I mean, it certainly would have scared me as a kid, but yeah. I've said previously I was a very sensitive child, so that's, <laughs> that's not saying much, admittedly. Um, yeah. I think what's interesting about it is that the scariness doesn't really come from the expected sources. So the zombie-like figures, the the characters who are raised from the dead, are quite kind of laconic uh, at best. Mm. You know, they're very... They're sort of... Zombies are obviously traditionally slow and shambling, but these Mm. are particularly lacklustre, morose zombies. Um, And Mm. I think even early on, it's quite obvious that they're not a major threat. So what is positioned yeah. as more of a threat uh, is the idea of the curse itself. And this mm. is scariest when it's presented in a fairly vague metaphysical way. So one thing I did like is Norman has these visions, essentially, where mm. the material fabric of his world seems to rip apart. Yeah. And yeah, and this is done with a kind of ripping paper effect and one of the things that disappointed me about Paranorman is I felt it didn't utilise the medium of stop motion nearly as well as it could have done. So mm-hmm. the character designs would have been much the same in CGI, whereas Coraline, I think, makes an incredible use of the medium. It's a very, very tactile film in a way that Paranorman isn't so much. Yes. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. And that's... Um, th- I mean, the animation is still... looks very good, but it's not as... Yeah, it's not as incredible as Carolina, but the the moment when the um when uh, Norman's doing a play at school and um and he has this he has this vision and the stage and all the people on it just sort of crinkle up um and it turns into a forest and it's a, it's a very cool effect. It's um, made of paper. 
It's made of paper. <laughs> That's a reference no one will get. That's a reference um, no one will get. But uh, <laughs> it, it's... Yeah, that that's really effective, right? So mm. these moments of reality shifting and similarly the final confrontation, which is quite similar to the final confrontation of the other mother and Coraline in as much mm. as the kind of location explodes into this great white void. Um, mm-hmm. That's all really good. And that's very effective. And those bits were quite thrilling. Mm. But... There's not much of a sense of mystery, really. Like, no, it's all done in this oddly straightforward way. So Caroline, I think, is very effectively creepy because it situates this other place within the home. So Caroline, for those mm-hmm. who don't know, finds this little door in her house that leads to an other world that looks very similar to her own, except everyone has buttons for eyes and things are just slightly off. And... It has that sense of the uncanny, and there's very little of the uncanny, I would say, in Paranorman. It's all weirdly kind of straightforward. Like, Yeah, that's a good point, <laughs> um, because it has all the sort of Halloween-y, spooky trappings, but it's not actually very creepy at all. Yeah, it's yeah. odd, because if anything, it uses those Halloween trappings for sort of satirical commentary on commercialisation that adults will maybe get but will probably go over kids heads anyway yeah it it is it is tonally pretty odd (laughs) yeah no no i think i mean when we get onto box trolls that's tonally (laughs) even odder (laughs) i i I would say but but yeah and one thing i found quite strange is what kind of traditions were being drawn on right Mm. so Mm. what i found very odd is at first, I found it very hard to work out how old Norman was because of the kind of films he was watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, like at the beginning, he's he's watching sort of. Um, I don't know, he's watching a slasher film. Exactly. Yeah. So at first, I thought, oh, he's going to be watching Hammer horror films, you know, sort of mm. Bella Lugosi or slightly kind of campy nineteen sixties films. But it seems like the films he's watching are actually quite a bit nastier than that. And mm. the music they use is all very kind of 1980 synthy. So they seem much more like kind of direct-to-video nasties, um, yeah. which I found quite strange. I mean, I know I do have friends who grew up watching, mm. watching you know, 18-rated horror films. So I guess that's partly, you know, comes down to one's own childhood. I very much didn't. And, <laughs> you know, there's no way I could have... I mean, my mum... Uh, you know, to, to, to give some indication of this, my mum wrote a letter to Ofcom, um, when I was a kid, and, you know, she doesn't regularly do this. I think this is the only letter she ever wrote to Ofcom, um, because the trailer for Nightmare on Elm Street was broadcast on Terrestrial before the nine o'clock watershed. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, th- th- this so deeply upset me and yeah, <laughs> caused so many sleepless nights for probably me and my parents that, uh, yeah, she, she actually wrote a letter to Ofcom about this. So, yeah, I, I very much didn't grow up watching, you know, mm. like Nightmare on Elm Street or any of that kind of stuff. So when it turns out, I mean, ha- can you remember how old Norman is? Is he? He's 11. 11. Yeah. So, uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to be oversensuous, and people, people have, you know, their own own modes of parenting. But uh, I did sort of think, hmm, I'm not sure about these films he's watching. <laughs> yeah, and and it kind of, I mean, it, it would seem a more obvious choice to have him watching a Hammer horror film, <laughs> something a bit older and more sort of classic kind of yeah 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 more sort of traditionally um, ghoulish rather yeah. than genuinely maybe nasty um mm. yeah um and so yeah sorry sorry no i was just going to say that yeah that this is something we touched upon before we began the recording um so maybe you can talk about is that to me so started this uh, motif, if you will, <laughs> in, in Paranorman <laughs> of vague inappropriateness. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, it really doesn't seem to quite know to whom it's 
pitching itself. Um, and there's some very odd jokes. <laughs> yeah, I think I've written down, like, there's some kind of sort of innuendo, basically, around Norman. And he's still very young. And, you know, there are a couple of lines where his parents, you know, seem to think he might have, I don't know, like, pornography under the bed. Or there's some kind of joke around that. And I'm like... He's eleven. <laughs> what, 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 why would you say this? Um, yeah, and then and then, um, God, there's this, there's just this bafflingly um, inappropriate scene where um, we'll we'll get to this character, but Norman's friend, who's a sort of dorky kind of kid, is Norman comes round to his house, and um, and this kid is watching is watching a video of his mum doing like aerobics so was it definitely like, his mum because like no it was definitely oh, his that, mom. that's bizarre <laughs> and he's like has it paused like guiltily you know like oh what's he doing watching watching this oh yeah and, 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 and she does does say you know son are you watching my aerobics video again yeah which suggests it's something you know this is a thing he has done it before um which it's is his mum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Which I don't know why. I, I don't know why they would make that joke. The, yeah, because it's sort insinuation. of wildly inappropriate, and adds this sort of <laughs> dimension to the character that obviously is not picked up again. You know, it's just yeah. there, which is the way of quite a lot of the humour in Paranorman. You know, there'll just be a line, and you're like. What? Did I mishear that? That's really <laughs> troubling. Like the implications of that are very worrying and it's just left there. Yeah. <laughs> um yes. Like there's a, a um, similar dubious joke um about and again, you know, it's it's funny, we're talking about children's horror and I'm immediately sort of mm. thinking, Oh, is it okay to talk about this kind of stuff in a podcast? <laughs> well, apparently it's okay for a PG rated <laughs> film. So <laughs> yeah. um but there's there's a joke it's very oddly phrased, but so Norman has this eccentric uncle. Uh, we might, is that fair? Do you think a fair characterization? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so an eccentric uncle, uh, voiced by John Goodman of, uh, many Coen Brothers films. And his uncle is sort of rejected by the rest of the family. Um, he, clearly isn't very able to look after himself um so he has sort of he looks quite um like mr twit from the Roald Dahl book the twits yeah but then so with the twits obviously there's this just sort of emphasis on the idea that they're not you know that, that they don't look after themselves because they don't want to right because they're jerks yeah. whereas mm-hmm. you get the sense that he might have you know genuine difficulties with his mental health right i think he's mm. meant to be seen as a kind of kooky crazy character um yeah 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 who lives alone and uh, is often talked about as being a homeless person for instance mm. um mm-hmm. but anyway there's a really odd joke uh about him walking in on norman in the bathroom or something because uh, because he um because he comes to uh, tell, he dies, and then he comes to tell Norman about the prophecy, and that Norman has to stop the dead from rising. Yeah. And he does this in ghost form while Norman's on the toilet. Yeah, and, he's in he's in the toilet stall. Yes, yeah, he arri- and he arises from the uh, from the sister or from the toilet. Yeah. Um, I mean, we could probably do a whole kind of episode on ghosts in toilets in children's <laughs> horror. <laughs> um, you know, this this being in Round the Twist and Harry Potter. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Note that one down. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there's a very odd joke about, I think Norman sort of says something like, oh, he's done that before, or, or something like that. There's some kind of... Does he? Yeah, there's some, I can't remember, the, I don't want to misrepresent oh. it, but there's some kind of odd joke suggesting this has happened once before. Oh, goodness. And I wasn't sure if it was meant to be, you know, I wasn't sure how adult the joke was meant to be, but it was definitely meant to be a sort of awkward joke. And... It just had a slightly wrong tone, you know. It just made me feel a bit uncomfortable, and I thought, "Okay, wh- wait, what are you doing with that?" 
I mean, that's sort of how I feel about Paranorman. It has a slightly wrong tone and it makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, yeah. <laughs> I did want to talk about uh, one thing that I thought was good before we keep talking about stuff we don't like. Um, <laughs> which is that um, I thought the bit that was actually pretty scary um, was when Norman sees sort of a vision of these old timey pilgrim people um, sentencing Agatha, who is the witch. Um, so we're kind of led to believe that she's a sort of stereotypical kind of ugly old crone kind of witch. We see just this perspective of these um, these adults kind of looming down and telling her, you know, that she's going to be executed. And then it's revealed that she's a 11-year-old girl and As, she's terrified. Exactly. Exactly the kind of person we don't want to see executed, unlike old yes, ladies. Yes, no, uh, unlike an ugly old woman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a cute girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, but um, I think that managed to... I thought that, that brought home the, the sort of horror of that. Oh, yeah. What the townspeople are doing pretty effectively. And it also gives... I mean, effectively, and, you know, this is something that comes up time and time again, especially in young adults' literature, of very serious, you know, the most serious of themes being mm. discussed in a medium for children or young adults. Um, but essentially then it becomes a story about the limits of forgiveness and redemption for child murderers, effectively. It, you know, that it's yes. dealing with the same kind of questions that South Africa, say, dealt with with the truth and reconciliation. Um, like, seriously, though, like, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it's essentially trying to deal, and, you know, it very much weighs in on the side of forgiveness, um, whether... It puts a bit too much pressure on, mm. you know, the victims of of you know of murder or serious violence to to forgive. In this case, I'm not sure, but I mean, I admired the fact yeah. that he was trying to deal with the topic of forgiveness, um, albeit yeah. in a very you know in a, in a film that feels very kind of irreverent and throwaway. So you've got this film with all these sort of slightly inappropriate jokes and generally doesn't seem to be taking itself very seriously and then it's dealing with some very serious topics yeah um yeah i i did want to talk about the message of the film because i did find it quite confused um okay how how so, so well okay so so that when with the um sort of central conceit is maybe they talk about fear making people do terrible things so the, the these old pilgrim townspeople were scared of Agatha and her supposed witchcraft, and so they killed her. And now they sort of draw a parallel to that between between that and the, the current day townspeople who are so scared of the zombies that they're going to destroy everything in their rampage. And that kind of makes sense. Um, but then it kind of seems to sort of half tie this into... A message about bullying so you shouldn't bully people like Norman or Agatha because they're different and you're scared of them which is good but then it doesn't really extend this message to um, Neil who is the kid we talked about as Norman's friend who the like the film makes very sort of cringy like jokes at his expense yeah, they're uh, at the expense of him being like effeminate for one thing. Effeminate and fat and just generally dorky, I think. But sort of no one's they're not no one's bullying him because they're scared of him. Like they're bullying him because they're like contemptuous of him and, or and like toxic masculinity whatever. and such. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I sort of feel like it has a slightly, a slightly confused message about who it's okay to bully. <laughs> no, no, I, I think I think that's fair. That it's an odd film in part because while its sentiment theoretically is on the side of the downtrodden and the oppressed and those who are bullied and those who suffer, in terms of its humour. Its jokes often seem to be at the expense of the very people it 
pretending or claiming or trying to champion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which which is problematic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, um, we haven't really. So the, I feel like, aside from the dodgy humour, I mean, the kind of the other main issue I have with Paranorman is just the the characters are just extremely stereotyped. Well, Nor- um, Norman himself's all right, I think, as a character. Nor- I mean, Norman Norman is all right. Yeah. Norman is more of a character than the rest of them. I mean, you know, Norm- Norman's a fairly likeable character because he seems quite earnest and he is relatively reserved and shy, but at the same time, he's enthusiastic about his interests, like X-rated horror films. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's quite well-meaning. Um, he's plucky and courageous, but at the same time, not kind of unrealistically so. Um yeah. So I think you know, yeah, as okay. a protagonist, he, he's not bad. As a, uh, yeah, no, it's more the um, the surrounding cast. Yeah. Um, so his other family members, um, like his sister, is very much. Put- she's like um, some very like valley girl cheerleader. Yeah, I've I've written valley girl stereotype <laughs> down in my in my yeah. notes. I definitely think that is the stereotype they were kind of going for. Yeah, she doesn't really have anything more to her <laughs> i mean well i mean she she stands up for norman at the end but, so obviously yeah. i mean i know you wanted to talk about the reveal i don't know whether to call it a reveal or a reversal <laughs> joke or quite what it is with her um the character who the film frames as potentially being her love interest right yes so so yeah so um so who's neil's older brother Neil's older brother, um, I've actually forgotten his name, but... Um, is it Mitch? Yes, it might be Mitch, yeah. Um, so he's sort of framed as a kind of very, again, quite stereotypical, sort of muscly jock character, and um, Norman's sister, Courtney, I remember her name, Hi. is, um, is uh, sort of hanging on to him, and, like, you know, she's obviously, like, very interested in him throughout the whole film. And then right at the end, like right at the end of the film, you know, she's like trying to like sort of suggest they maybe go on a date or something. And he says, oh, you should meet my boyfriend. You'd love him. <laughs> um, and I don't know and... if it's it's meant to be a joke or not. Like on one level, this feels like it could be progressive because it's kind of tossed off. Like... Oh, hey, you know, this character's gay and it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. But then on another I mean, level, it does use the same structure essentially as a pullback reveal <laughs> joke. Yes. I think it's a bit of a Dumbledore, really. Ah, um, okay. Because I think it's sort of giving a kind of veneer of progressiveness without having to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> that, that, that could be the tagline of Paranorman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Paranorman, or how to have a veneer of progressiveness without having to do anything. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, because, so, if uh, in an alternative imagining of the film, if we had met his boyfriend during the film and they had, you know, done fighting zombies together and it wasn't done in a homophobic way or whatever, uh, then that would have been genuinely progressive. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as it is, I, it just sort of feels a bit of a, like a kind of gotcha, or possibly also a joke at the sister's expense, because it's like, oh, haha, ha, you fancied him, but he's gay. Yeah, and certainly the film seems, on the whole, that you know it's on the side of Norman and not so much on the side of his sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've got some weird notes down for this film. Like, I don't know <laughs> yeah. if this shows that I wasn't very engaged or that I just had... I don't... Like, I've written, for instance, Missed King of the Hill Connections. <laughs> uh-huh. Now, of course, I always miss King of the Hill Connections, but why I expected there to be King of the Hill Connections specifically in Paranorman, I have literally no idea. <laughs> Yeah. But I, I must I must include my sister's 
observation because she asked me specifically to do so. Okay. So uh, Phoebe's uh, Phoebe, Phoebe was relative, probably more on board with the film than me. Uh, didn't love it, but kind of liked it. Mm. But her her main uh, thing that she did like was that Norman has an electric toothbrush, which she was delighted. And she said, you never see electric toothbrushes in film. <laughs> and asked specifically that I mention this on the podcast. Um, Great. She was very pleased about that. So, <laughs> Cool. I mean, that's some representation right there. Then. <laughs> well, yeah, she, she hates using non-electric toothbrushes. So, you know, she felt mm. validated at least. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, yeah i think generally it, it's 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 pretty tepid <laughs> it's it's, it's yeah. not a great film by any means yeah um so um, let's go on to another not great film <laughs> yeah oh let's um so. although a film <laughs> that is more frustrating i felt than paranorman because i think it did have more of a potential to be a great film and it very much frustrated me that it wasn't because I yes. really wanted to like it yes. so we're talking uh, about box trolls uh, oh yeah we're to- uh, the box trolls oh the box trolls <laughs> 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 they like to be referred <laughs> Well, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, 
Yeah. And I, I quite like um, the aesthetic. I mean, hmm. it is grotesque, but it's sort of winningly grotesque. Like, it's more interesting than Paranorman, I think. Hmm. So everything is sort of slightly crooked and run down and uh, lots of jaunty angles and generally that aesthetic of make, do and mend. So hmm. different materials having been stacked onto one another. And, yeah, generally... Yeah, I think it looks like a more interesting world to inhabit than the world of Paranorman. Hmm. Um, yeah. Which, and I, I actually saw it upon release in the cinema, and hmm. certainly it was very vivid on a big screen, and it did feel like quite a living, breathing world, which is an impressive thing to pull off in stop motion. Yeah. And it had some similarities aesthetically to the work of Yuri Bata, who's a Czech stop-motion um, filmmaker. Who most famous film is a version of The Pie Piper of Hamelin. He did in the oh, 80s okay. called Kreiser, uh, which is all carved out of deep red mahogany wood and then mm. uses real rats or well, dead rats uh, animated <laughs> um, for the acts and then everything else, wooden puppets. And it had, it, I did wonder watching it whether it had been a bit inspired by that because some of the aesthetic mm. is quite similar similar to it. So, yeah, like, visually yeah. I, I quite enjoyed it. It's certainly striking. And, you know, I always admire stop motion just for the sheer amount of craft and, ti- oh, and yeah. time that goes into making such a film. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's why I, I really did come into, <laughs> you know, well, not so much box shells because I knew because you'd always told me about it. But I mean, definitely came into paranormal like wanting to enjoy it because I, I love the stop motion and it does look gorgeous. But um, so, where do you think things start to go wrong for you? Okay, so, <laughs> um, so there's um, so there's quite a lot of like gross out humour going on in this film. And I think some of it is kind of disgusting, but harmless. Like, there's this whole thing about cheese. Cheese implies status. The Duke hoards cheese and eats it in his private room wearing his white hat. Anyway, um, Eggs ends up going to a sort of fancy party and spits out wads of cheese from his mouth onto a plate and then eats it again. And it is gross. But, you know, whatever. But then I think where it starts to get more suspect is that a lot of it is sort of getting us to be disgusted by Archibald Snatcher himself who is the exterminator character. And he's Um, sort of presented as a member of the aspiring working class, right? Basically. Yeah. Like um, he's seen as being yeah, abject basically. That that he, mm-hmm. he clearly aspires to uh, to have the power of the king or nobility, but you know his manners aren't up to scratch. So his teeth are shown as being sort of yellow and crooked, and he's uh, shown as being ugly basically and uncouth yeah. and sort of ungainly. Mm-hmm. Like his movements uh, are very sort of awkward, and uh, his clothes don't quite fit right. So he's sort of seen yeah. as not having the grace or the or the good breeding to be, you know, a real member of the aristocracy. Yeah, um, and he somewhat resembles a Timothy Spall character, although he's not voiced by Timothy Spall, but um, like a uh, Wormtail in Harry Potter, or well, you know, whatever Timothy Spall plays these characters that are sort of quite grubby and awful. Yeah, or um, a little bit like the kind of persona Martin Jacks of the Tiger Lilies puts on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this um, sort of, uh, I guess, I mean, you're from London, I'm not. So is it a Cockney accent he's got, or? Uh, uh, it's Londonish. <laughs> I don't know if it's Cockney, it's sort of, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, like her aunt in <laughs> but... English studio, so, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, it's maybe sort of meant to be more of a generic like English mm. but not upper class English accent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's also a um a somewhat an aspect of the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang to him. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> so yeah, um, you were saying about Snatcher. So yeah, so 
so so it sort of gets us to be disgusted by him in two main ways, uh, neither of which I like. So the first thing is that like the Duke and his cronies eat mountains of cheese every day when they should be governing the town, and Snatcher desperately wants to be part of their cheese-eating society, except that he is allergic to cheese. And when he eats it to sort of try and be part of that life, his hands and face um, swell up horrendously. So the film's sort of representing both his his gluttony and his lust for power in these kind of deliberately horrific transformation scenes where his face ends up sort of swollen and discoloured and like disfigured basically. And you know, he he's already as as you were saying, he's already depicted as an ugly character and sort of that that age old trope of the villain being physically ugly. But the cheese seems scenes uh seem to really kind of go all out in making him disfigured in a way that's supposed to be sort of frightening and disgusting. Which I think is fairly shitty. As, I don't know, I hope, but maybe at this point in time we should be trying to dismantle the trope that, like, looking different and having a, you know, a facial difference is synonymous with evil. And I feel like it's really playing into that and I don't like it what do you think? Yeah no I, I, I agree and it seems to be taking moral things that really have you know nothing to do with what one looks like or one's bodily expression <laughs> and then somehow trying to make them bodily right so yeah. obviously anyone can be proud or aspire to power um, but somehow this ends up being yeah expressed through bodily deformity in the film. Yeah. Um, and you think, why? And there's a very odd one thing I found, and it's probably why I brought sort of class into it, is that really the... Uh, is he a king or a duke? But the, the white... I tat- think he's a duke. So the duke and his, uh, his lesser dukedom cronies, whatever... They're called basically mm. the white hats aren't mm. really, yeah, they may be sort of vaguely sort of presented as ridiculous and selfish in the film, mm. but they you certainly face no comeuppance in the way that Snatcher does, and mm. they behave just as appallingly. You know, they're, they're just as awful as he is. You know, if, if Snatcher is the person who uh, commits this genocide of the box trolls, right? Then the White Hats commissioned it. They're just as yeah. venal and awful, and yet they're not really shown to be the villains of the film. They're not heroic, but they're not villainized. And maybe not coincidentally, they look far more traditionally attractive and dashing than Snatcher does. And uh-huh. they're also far posher, right? And they don't have yeah. problems with eating cheese. That There's this sort of weird trope of... You know, it's almost very Victorian, and I guess it's it's got this mm. Victoriana, but also in the worst <laughs> possible way. This very <laughs> Victorian idea of the body is destiny, almost. That certain people are bred to rule and certain people aren't. And I don't know, like, Snatcher's main... Well, one of the... And we'll have to talk more. Well, I'm sure we're going to talk more mm. about this, but mm. one of the things he's demonised for is aspiring above his station basically mm-hmm. that yeah. you know he yeah. he's not the right type to be one of the white hats and you know this seems like an incredibly kind of regressive notion and the kind of thing yeah you'd find in to like i don't know the water babies or something right you know a piece of <laughs> victorian children's yeah. literature and yeah. yeah it is a good point um cuz the um the white hats are literally spend the money that should be going to a children's hospital to buy a giant cheese. And yet they are not as, uh, as not as villainized as Snatcher. <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so did you want to talk more about Snatcher? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's complaint number one. And then so then the film sort of does the same thing again with Snatcher, and this time in terms of gender. 
so one this is the point where we're going to start talking about transmisogynist and transphobic tropes but so snatcher is performing shows as a foreign prima donna called madame frou-frou to curry favor with the duke who doesn't know that she's snatcher of course and you can see where this is going uh, a mile off so we then get this other sort of heavy air quotes disgusting frightening grotesque aspect of snatcher which is his femininity. So, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is just very transmisogynistic, which, for people who don't know that word, it's uh, sort of the intersection of transphobia and misogyny that is levelled at trans women and trans feminine people. But it just encompasses a lot of these tropes of, yeah, of seeing femininity in a male character as, as, you know, disgusting and whatever. So there's a scene where Eggs tries to show the crowd that Madame Fru-Fru is actually Archibald Snatcher by, like, removing his wig. Which, um, which is actually, like, a very old transphobic mo- movie trope that's, like, goes back decades. Um, like, trans women having sort of wigs pulled off their heads. Um, to to reveal, but yeah. Anyway, oh, um, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it actually is. And then, um, right at the end, the Duke finally realizes realizes that they are the same person, and says, "I regret so much." Like, which is just a, a vile joke. Well, yeah. Really, it's really like yeah, which is really um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I saw it with Rachel as my partner at the time and say Rachel is someone who has read Desaad and found it funny. You know, like she, <laughs> she's not easily bothered, you know, or upset. And I remember was, I think, winced at that bit and afterwards said, God, that's, you know, that, that must have been horrible for any trans people in the audience. And it was really pissed off about it basically and yeah I, I was too it's and also you know there's just this sort of general sense the white hats harass madame frou-frou and then ah ha ha they were harassing someone who was a man all along which yeah is horrible um <laughs> and yeah um really mm-hmm. and it really left a sour taste in my mouth yeah, it really, it really just like sort of once you get, well, once I got to this, there, it's just overshadowed the whole film. Like, I, I I'm not going to watch this film again. I'm not going. I'm going to tell people not to watch this film because it's just really, really avert. Um, and I, I've seen people say, "Oh no, it's not transphobic because he's not." He's not like a trans woman character. That doesn't. It's not the point. <laughs> it's a trope, <laughs> and the perpetuation of the trope that has real life consequences. Yeah, and I, I do think Madame Fruvu is not shown as merely Snatcher's disguise. Snatcher is shown, I would say, as enjoying embodying Madame Frofro. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That it is yeah. shown as an extension of Snatcher's identity. I agree. And there are a few little things that I noticed that reinforce that. So when Snatcher thinks that he's he's won and he's being given a white hat, he's, he thinks he's killed the box trolls, and um, the Duke asks him for his full name, and he gives his medal name as Penelope. Ah, oh, ha, 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 he has a girl's name. Uh-huh. Um, and then near the end when he is invading the box trolls cavern like driving this huge roaring machine um he's still wearing the lipstick from the madame frou-frou outfit just you know yeah, yeah. to keep that to keep that association going yeah yeah so it's i mean i it you know it's 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 hard without having actually seen the film to get it wholly across but it it really does feel like, yeah, it, it really does feel unpleasant. 
and it does yeah. feel phobic. And I say if if Rachel if Rachel feels like this, <laughs> that's that's saying something because really she's not someone who's easily <laughs> offended. And it, it's a kids' film; it wouldn't be acceptable in an adult film, but it just feels mm. just feels even nastier being in a kids' film, especially when the message of something like Paranorman. You know, and Box Trolls ostensibly is meant to be about embracing difference. The whole narrative of Box Trolls is meant to be like, oh, how dare you assume that the Box Trolls were terrible, awful creatures. They were, you yeah. know, they were nice all along, you know, and then having this uh-huh. kind of sneering <laughs> trans misogyny in it really, really undermines that. Yeah, it really does. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, it's worth... Hmm saying that that neither film was directed by Henry Selick, which I didn't know at first. You know, I, I think I when mm. Paranorman first came out, I think I assumed it was Selick because I associate him so strongly with the studio. But in fact, yeah. Selick has only made Coraline and then the CGI short Moon Girl um, for Leica. Okay. Um, uh, okay, yeah. And then... As yet, sadly, to release enough film. So, you know, I loved Selick's films growing up, especially mm. Nightmare Before Christmas. It was yeah. probably my favourite children's film. And I like James the Giant Peach quite a lot, although I do associate it with travel sickness because I, f- <laughs> I first watched it on a ferry as a kid. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, sadly, I don't know if it's partly an OCD thing, but, you know, those associations just stick. So even thinking about mm. the film makes me feel a bit queasy which is a shame because i quite like okay. i quite like <laughs> that's a shame a shame because i quite liked it but um, <laughs> um monkey bone less so um <laughs> which is not a masterpiece though i did read um an interesting instagram post by rose mcgowan um uh, a few weeks ago i think which she made last year about monkey bone and saying that the studio took it off Selick's hands halfway through production and that all of okay. she's, she reckons that all of the good things about the film are basically due to Selick and all of the kind of crass juvenile humour in it is basically <laughs> what came after he was dismissed, which is a shame uh, because yeah. there are moments of Monkey Bone which are visually astonishing. It's got some of the best art direction I've ever seen in a dark comedy fantasy film, but a lot mm. of the humour's just crass and I'm puerile. But yeah, apparently that's not Selick's fault, which was kind of nice to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, he is not responsible for the... For, for, for the box trolls. For the box trolls. Yeah. Um, it's a shame. I don't really want to end it on such a downbeat note, because it's like we didn't like Paranorman oh. and we like box trolls even less. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about something. I, one thing I did like from box trolls. Cool. I really enjoyed the little girl who's the Duke's uh, the Duke's daughter and her incredibly ghoulish preoccupation with the box trolls. Oh yeah, um, I've forgotten about her. She's she is ace. Yeah. I, yeah. I think um, she's she, maybe voiced by Ellie Fanning. Dakota yeah, Fanning's younger Elle, sister. Elle Fanning? Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think so. Yeah, she she's really sort of scrappy. And ghoulish and bitey doesn't does I say it's a little while since I watched Fox Dog. Does she bite people? I feel like she bites people. <laughs> I think um, Eggs bites her first, but then she threatens to bite later on. Oh, good, good. Um, but yeah, there's a bit where um, where she's um, <laughs> she 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 sort of encounters Eggs and and she's like, oh, did the box trolls eat your parents? Did they skin them alive? Did they let you watch? I mean, did they make you watch? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's quite, <laughs> it's quite fun. <laughs> that, that, that was a, a brilliant impression. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that is one thing I enjoyed. Yeah, from the box trolls. So it'll be interesting to see what Leica does next as a studio. Mm. Like I heard talk of. Paranorman 2, which doesn't get me too excited. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I'd like set, to see a new Selick film, of course. Um, mm. And while I'm not always a massive fan of Neil Gaiman, 
I do think, you know, Caroline's brilliant, and I think he's very good at writing modern day fairy tales, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, I would love to see um, another stop motion film based on a Gaiman kids' book. Like uh, mm. The Wolves That Came Out of the Wolves, for instance, oh, would, would yeah. make for a delicious stop motion film. That would be, <laughs> be very enjoyable. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what we're going to do for our next episode, but I would like to do something that we both enjoy more. Yeah, I think <laughs> we'll hopefully look at something we both enjoy more and uh, maybe, maybe a book this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, okay. Do you, so, do you have a, a sign-off? I mean, I, could, I thought you could combine the two I did last time <laughs> and say, uh, well, sort of switch it around. So it could be, keep it creepy, spooky kids. Nice. All right. Keep it creepy, spooky kids. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's yeah. easier to keep things creepy than it is to keep things spooky. I'm not sure. <laughs> and is it better to be spooky or creepy? Yeah. Questions. A, a question to be answered next time, perhaps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter at, at @stillscaredpod, and our email address is stillscaredpodcast at gmail.com. Our intro music is by Maki Yamazaki, and you can find more of her work at makiyamazaki.com. And our outro is by Joe Kelly, and his band Etel Shin, which is E-T-A-O-S-H-I-N, are at etelshin.co.uk. Our logo is by Letty Wilson. You can find her work at behance.net slash... Uh, letty draws and finally if you'd like to leave us a nice review on itunes we'd appreciate that thanks <laughs>